This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. A great pleasure to talk about episode four. The subject is a gentleman of whom I've taken great interest over nearly half a century. Well, actually more than half a century, because I discovered his book when I was living in Toronto, doing my graduate work. I found it in an old secondhand bookstore, Queen Street. And the bookstore, well, had lots of titles, but the one that attracted my attention was brown cover, still have it. It's entitled Longlands, and it's the story, the autobiography of a Blackfoot or, or blood First Nations person. It was done in 1928. It's a real page turner. It's really good. And I didn't know much about the Plains First Nations then. I was living in Toronto. My specialty is, uh, is was, is, still is, the Mississauga or the Ojibwe-speaking peoples on the North Shore of Lake Ontario, on the Anishinaabeg, and actually, actually is episode five. So we don't have to spend time on that right now. But that was my that is my specialty. And here I am at the secondhand bookstore, and I found this autobiography of a Plains First Nations chief who remembered chasing buffalo in the last inter skirmishes on the plains. It was just it's just a barn burner, really good. So I read that book and I'm in Toronto doing my PhD thesis on the Mississauga, but I logged it away in my brain and I still had the physical copy. I get this job in Calgary and one of my uh, oh that was well I, we've done that in episode one and two. That was that was the change in my life. It gave me a future. It was wonderful. It was teaching Canadian history, teaching my hobby at the University of Calgary. It was divine. And I was asked, though, to do a course. One of my courses was to be on the First Nations in Western Canada. Well, good luck. I didn't know much about them at all because it's not the same. The First Nations world is as diverse as Europe. There's so many differences and stuff. So I Plains First Nations. Good luck. But I had read one book, Longlands story. Well, that was a, uh, uh, well, anyways, I had to certainly work on that. my course. That was my real assignment that first fall. I really got reading on the subject and loved it and became a very solid teaching area for me, but um, not research area. That's, it's too much. I couldn't uh, keep the Mississauga going and, and do the Plains First Nations as well. So anyways, in short, Longlands was um, a help. He created my interest and all, and I knew all about him. And when I came west, uh, this is 1974 in the fall, there, we have a wonderful uh, museum here, the Glenbow Museum, and they have this terrific library. It's now, most of it now has actually moved to the University of Calgary, but at the time it was at the at, with the Glenbow itself, the Glenbow Museum. And uh, well, I had a great time. That first fall, it was exciting. I was teaching, well, I was preparing to teach a course in the Plains First Nations, and the literature was fantastic. Um, Hugh Dempsey became a special friend. He uh, many, He's written many books on Indigenous topics and uh, really on Alberta history, too. He helped me. And um, anyways, I got... I was down at Glenbow researching, and I met Doug Cass, who was became a personal friend, just started as an archivist. And uh, Doug pulled out, I'm sure it was he, this box of material. I'd asked about Longlands, and there was a box of manuscript material on them. 
Oh, I was in seventh heaven. So I looked at that and uh, I read the book and all. And uh, gee, going into this box, there were some discrepancies. It didn't seem that all was there. Uh, like his life story, being a fighting, uh, participating in the last struggles on the plains and chasing the buffalo, it just didn't add up. He was too, he, he wouldn't have been old enough to have done all this stuff. So, anyways, a doubt is in my brain. And I started uh, poking around. And uh, let me tell you what I found. But first, let's start with his life in the West. Um, Longlance, Sylvester Longlance, appeared in Calgary in 1919. He was about, well, 30-ish. And he came, he'd served in the Canadian Army in World War I, overseas. Max had been wounded. Um, and uh, he was asked for his discharge in Calgary, which is fine. And it was in this city, my city, that he learned the craft of journalism. He was a natural writer, always a gifted writer. And he applied for a job at the Calgary Herald. They hired him and they trained him. They put him on every different beat, from police to sports to city hall. And he was Native American. He, when he first when he came to Calgary, he said he was Cherokee. And that's okay. Oklahoma. <laughs> okay. Well, he was a popular guy. He's a handsome, well-accomplished fellow, great athlete, great sense of humor, uh, great writer. Everything went was going well for him. Now, it wasn't a good time for First Nations in Calgary. Honestly, there's a lot of, there is still, I mean, but then there was, discrimination was sky high. It was, it was a bad time. But for him, no problem, because he moved everywhere. He went in every social circle. Uh, no barriers for him. And he was a darn good reporter. Well, these uh, these early years in Calgary, I met, I was able to, well, Doug and Hugh Dempsey, and uh, I, I got to know some of the old timers that remembered him. And they remembered him extremely positively. He was such an accomplished gentleman. Well, that really, fire fires were going very strongly on this one. And I still had Grail, but I'm now starting Long Lance as well. As, here's a man who cannot resist temptation. Give me a good research topic, I'm off. So uh, here I am with my PhD thesis finished, my uh, Grail interest still percolating away, and going full blast now on Long Lance. It was an appropriate moment because I was right on locale and uh, the papers were that glimble. So I'll tell you what I first found out. After Calgary, he left Calgary in 1922, and he went to Vancouver. Just before leaving Calgary, he'd done what he really enjoyed, which was a series on the First Nations in Alberta. This is in 1921. He had a very, very enjoyable time doing that. And actually, the Bloods, that's a, there's four First Nations in the Blackfoot Confederacy. And one of those First Nations are the Bloods, or Kainai. And uh, along with this article on the Bloods, or Kainai, was very positively received. And they adopted him. Uh, they, it was an honorary affair. It had no legal validity at all, but it was just, it's an honorific title. And uh, they gave him the title Buffalo Child. Uh, so that's very important to remember because when he leaves Calgary in 1922 and goes to Vancouver, he leaves as a Blackfoot or blood. He tells the Vancouver Sun his story is that he is a Blackfoot or actually blood. Um, and his in the name that he was given was Buffalo Child. He, and he writes then for the Vancouver Sun as Chief Buffalo Child Longlands. 
And Chief Buffalo Ted Longlance has proposed and has accepted uh, an article, a series of articles on the First Nations of the Pacific Coast and the interior of BC. He does this in the summer, late spring and summer of 1922. The articles are very interesting. Now, he's got a great imagination. So if you're in for the full factual record, uh, better go elsewhere. Um, and also, he doesn't have much time to do research. Heavens, he's earning his living from his pen. And he's good, but he can't. He doesn't have time for heavy-duty research. So some of it is limited value for history. But his picks up very well. He's very good at getting anecdotes and um, attitudes. He learns of the difficult situation the First Nations in BC are in. They didn't have treaties. And very Only very limited areas of BC were under treaty. The rest of the land had just been taken. There was tremendous injustice, and he records that. And this is his big value, in my opinion. He records, when others are ignoring it, the, the discontent of the Pacific Coast First Nations. Um, and he it, it, it does this in a series of articles. He calls for better education and better medical, just exactly what the political organization was calling for, and treaties, respect for land rights. That is the giving back of, of, of land, expansion of reserves. Um, so he's, he's a real advocate here for First Nations. Um, but again, no, please, the accuracy is low. However, this was a success. And what's next? Well, I found this out in my early research. Off he went to the Regina leader and proposed a series on the Saskatchewan First Nations. And this was well received. Of course. Good idea. That series did well. And the theme that he put, he keep, keeps referring to in his writings is, the First Nations are willing to accept the settler society, some of the aspects of it, but the purpose is not to be made into white men. The young people are not to be lost. They are to become better Indians. <laughs> so this is this is really you, the indifference, the ignorance of First Nations in Western Canada in this period is absolutely gigantic. It, it, we, we forget today how, how, how dis, well, this is distant and all. The population actually had been declining. The expectation was they'd be assimilated through the schooling, and um, they disappear. But not so. And Longlands, he, he was talking to the people themselves and learning this. When the time when ethnologists and anthropologists, there weren't many out there, and certainly not journalists, gathering this information. So there's a, a contribution there. Again, don't go overboard on accuracy because that's uh, that's. But when you consider the circumstances, he's making his living by his pen, and uh, sometimes he takes shortcuts and all. But he gets he gets the the theme is good. That is the the need to respect First Nations rights. So that's good. Now now we 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 got a whole portfolio here. He's, he keeps his he keeps his uh, clipping his clipping book. You know, Glenbow has it. Uh, there's two clipping books. One comes through. Um, uh, the missionary of the Bud Reserve, who he named as his executor, and the other comes. I I was able to locate that in North 
Carolina, but I'm getting ahead of my story. <laughs> I certainly am. But let's leave it for the moment that there are, uh, he keeps a scrapbook and he takes pictures and all. Um, the scrapbook is interesting because when you come to his articles, um, he starts the Sun Art series, the leader series, and the, he gets a, a commission for the Winnipeg Tribune. He's going to do a series on the First Nations of Manitoba. Um, when he, he in his scrapbooks, what he does after that point is now he's a, he's saying he's a Blackfoot, so he goes in the clippings that are before, um, well, 1922, 1920 before the way the summer of 1921, he takes them and and if it says Cherokee, he, he erases it and with his pen just puts over Cher, uh, Blackfoot. So I mean he's 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 starting to cover his tracks here, but anyways that's that's the persona he arrives in Winnipeg and he is well received. This is now um, the biggest city in the prairies. It's two hundred thousand people. It's uh, well, it's uh, Winnipeg's a going concern. Uh, it's still still a very very important center, the hub of Western. Um, the prairies, and um, he, he fits right in. His smooth and popular writing style makes him a real hit. Now, it's not just First Nations. He does some series, and he finds out some things that are, well, like he had in BC and Saskatchewan, sort of embarrassing things, really, but he, he puts them in the paper, and he also covers um, cultural issues and all, and it's, it's, it's a very popularly written series and well-received. But he was more than that. The Tribune... Um, used him for other stories. Uh, basically, Winnipeg was his headquarters for three years, and um, he was a boxer. He was a great sport. He was a natural athlete. He just a natural athlete, natural writer. He's just Mister Wonder Wonder Man here. Um, but just to give an example, the Tribune saw the talents in this gentleman very early, and he they knew he was a boxer. This is the great great age of boxing. And uh, Jack Dempsey is the key figure. Um, the big Jack Dempsey fight heavyweight match in late 1923 in New York at the Polo Grounds. Well, the Tribune sent him down to Longlands to cover the fight. Now, that's quite something. That's quite an expensive operation. They sent him down to, and there were 90,000 people watching this fight between um, Jack Dempsey and an Argentinian boxer, I believe it was Argentinian, uh, Furpo. And uh, anyways, 90,000 people. That's more than the entire population of Calgary at the time. Well, Longlands covered it. Oh, man, let's get some. Please, uh, we don't have time for a lot of excerpts, but we do have time certainly for this one. This one I love. Longlands wrote the heavyweight boxing championship up in his own distinctive manner. Here's a quote. There may have been a fight more savage, spectacular, and brutal than the slugfest here Friday night between Jack Dempsey and Louis-Angel Verpel, but it must have been back in the dark ages when men wore leopard skins around their loins and wielded tree stumps instead of eight-ounce gloves. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> you just get the whole action, and that's long lens. Handsome, well-dressed, and articulate, Longlands traveled in all social circles in Winnipeg. Population almost 200,000, the largest city in the prairies. He was at ease at the podium, spoke to gathers of authors, to church and local service clubs. Rumors of his accomplishments raced through the city. The Tribune, his paper, described him as, quote, the youngest chief west of the Great Lakes and one by blood inheritance. Garnet Clay Porter, a senior journalist at the paper, nicknamed the Colonel, he believed that Longlance had two 
university degrees. Longlance himself convinced Professor Allison of the Department of English at the University of Manitoba and the Tribune's literary editor that he had won the Italian War Cross as well as the Croix de Guerre French Award. Well, <laughs> it was really a wow. Samuel Hayakawa, a young student at the University of Winnipeg from Vancouver, stayed with the Allisons and met him several times. Half a century later, the respected academic and university administrator had become a U.S. senator from California. Senator Hayakawa kindly shared his recollections of Longlance with me in a December the 17th, 1980 letter. And this is another indication of his popularity in Winnipeg by a very important American politician in the 1970s, Senator Hayakawa, who said in his recollection that in company, Longlance was perfectly charming, a good storyteller and conversationalist, gracious and flattering towards women camaraderie with men. Well, Longlands escaped much of the discrimination Indigenous people faced in Winnipeg, but there was one exception. As Charles Lemie, who was a Tribune columnist at the time, told me half a century later. He told me that on his first visit to the Fort Garry Hotel, a doorman had refused Longlands entry. When his friends at the Tribune privately complained, the hotel management promptly apologized to him. Well, that was just that was the only recorded story I've heard of discrimination because he just escaped it all. He was above it all. One talk of long lances in Winnipeg really needs special attention because it was almost a hundred years ago, exactly to the day. It was his address to the Canadian Authors Association at the University of Manitoba. Longlance at the meeting met a clergyman, Reverend John McLean who had known, known Southern Alberta very well in the 1880s. He'd been the missionary there. He'd attend tremendous respect for the Blackfoot and for their language. Longlance and he had a conversation about the language. And McLean, who learned it, explained well, actually, he explained this to the entire meeting after Longlance's talk. It takes 49 pages of foolscap paper to conjugate one Blackfoot verb. It's that important. It's that complicated and sophisticated. Interestingly, McLean, by the way, he spent nine years there, and he never made a single convert. He told Longlance the reason for his lack of success Longlance put it in his article. I mean, this is quite frank. He said, McLean said, we wish, according to Longlance, we wish to make them white men and they desire their children to become better Indians. Exactly what he'd found in Saskatchewan. There you've got, that is so good. He's got it. Longlance has got it. Well, John McLean lived in Winnipeg in the 1920s uh, until his death in 1928. He worked as the archivist of the Methodist Church, that's now the United Church in Winnipeg, and as well as the chief, it's, uh, the chief librarian at their college, the Wesley College, now the University of Winnipeg. In his 70s, this go-getter worked on a law degree in his mid-70s, which was granted three years later in 1926, two years before his death. Well, this is quite. This gentleman is quite extraordinary, and he Longlands certainly is that too. They talked together, and in their conversation at the Canadian Authors Association occasion, at their meeting, Longlands mentioned that he belonged to the Blood Tribe of Indians. Wow, what a coincidence! 
but that his mother was of the Cherokee tribe. Casually, he introduced this interesting detail about his mother. Well, this this is incredible. He said this because he had to naturally explain why he didn't speak Blackfoot. Well, it was because his mother was Cherokee. This is really imaginative stuff, I'll tell you. Um, so, well, McLean, something seemed to be, well, not quite right. I mean, really. Well, did McLean follow up on this? Well, he had two jobs. No. And, and he was preparing his law, beginning his law studies. No. <laughs> Even if he had wanted to. McLean would have no reserve of energy to investigate this interesting disclosure. So Longlands is he's he's free, scot free, and he'll he'll have other occasions. But he's he just he manages to get these questions sort of reduced to a minimum. Doesn't talk much about his early days, and he'll only do that when he publishes his autobiography in 1928. Now, having traveled widely in the West, uh, doing stories, covering boxing matches, giving lectures, Longlands moved to New York City in 1927, where the next year he published Longlands, a work he intended as a piece of historical fiction, but one which his publisher insisted should be appear, should appear as autobiography. The book did well. Critics praised it. Writing in the New York Herald Tribune in October 1928, Paul Redden, a well-known American anthropologist, described it as authentic and an unusually faithful account of childhood and early manhood. I cannot think of any work that could act as a better corrective of the ridiculous notions still prevailing about the Indians. <laughs> so thumbs up from the distinguished American anthropologist. Longlance's imaginative autobiography brought wide public recognition, entry into New York's highest literary and social circles, and an opportunity to pass from print into film. He was offered and took a leading role in The Silent Enemy, a film about the life of the Ojibwe in northern central Canada before the arrival of the Europeans. The film was shot in the Tomogamy area and released in 1930. Variety, the entertainment publication, newspaper, praised his performance in its issue of May 21, 1930. Quote, Chief Longlance is an ideal picture Indian because he is a full-blooded one, an author of note in Indian lore, and now an actor in fact. High praise. Well, the film, alas, from the producer's point of view, from the backers of the film, did not do that well because, unfortunately, The Silent Enemy was indeed silent. It was a silent film and the talkies were just coming in. But Longlands emerged from it pretty well because he, he got those good reviews. Now, there's other incidences where Longlands comes close to having to admit that there's something... It's curious about his origin story of being a blood Indian, being Buffalo child, and all this. In 1930, at the height of his fame, his statue, in fact, as a public figure, began to decline. Rumors began to circulate in New York City that he was not who he claimed to be. Cynics claim that most autobiographies contain a fair portion of fiction. Longlance's was unique in that his life story was fiction from beginning to end. Chief Buffalo Child Longlands was neither Blackfoot nor blood, but rather a man of mixed heritage, European, Indigenous, and African-American, who was born and raised in the factory town of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This is a discovery I made in 1975, going through that box and the Glenbow archives. 
Both of Sylvester Long's parents had been born slaves. Joe Long thought that his father was white and his mother Eastern Cherokee. Sally Carson, his mother, had been told that her ancestry was also indigenous, a group now called Lumbee, and indigenous and European. Regardless of what Joe and Sally believed, they were not federally recognized Indians and consequently had no legal status as Native Americans. Even if it had been otherwise, in Winston, there was no possibility of getting recognized as Indian. There were only two racial classifications, white and colored. And as non-whites, the Longs lived in the African-American community and suffered much of the daily discrimination faced by their black neighbors. As a young boy, as long as they lived in Winston, Winston, Salem, full name, as long as he lived there, he had to go to a black school, he had to ride at the back of a streetcar, he had to watch movies from the colored gallery of the theater, and his parents told him for his own safety his must, he must remove his hat in the presence of a white person and never, never to talk back. Yet, his Indian, quotation marks, appearance, his high cheekbones, copper skin, and straight black hair offered an escape. From an early age, Sylvester Long fantasized about Indians. As a boy of 13, and again when he was 17 or 18, he joined, a wild, he joined Wild West shows. In 1909, falsifying the extent of in, his Indian ancestry and capitalizing on his appearance, and the fact that he'd learned some Cherokee while on the road, Longlands applied to the famous Indian Industrial Residential School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He identified himself as Sylvester Long, Sylvester Longlands Long. Once he graduated from Carlisle, where, by the way, Jim Thorpe, the famous athlete, was a fellow student and became a friend of Longlands's, when Longlands graduated, everyone assumed that he was indeed Indian. And in a way, he was. He was he had the connection, but he couldn't legally prove it. But he did have Native American ancestry. But what his imposture is, it's not so much saying that he was he was part Indian. That's the First Nations. But the it's it's this idea that he's presenting himself as a Blackfoot or blood a Plains First Nations person. That's the, that's what where he's he's stretching the truth there. Now, after uh, Carlisle Longlands comes up, I, we're now pretty well up to what I've taken to you two already. Uh, he goes up to Montreal, joins the Canadian Army. Uh, he wants to fight overseas, and he is wounded. It's four months action in France, and he's wounded, hospitalized in England. And uh, when he subsequently recovers and uh, he assigned to non-combat duties, when the war ends, he returns. He's discharged in Canada, and there... He entered in here in Calgary, and uh, of course, why Calgary? Well, it's quite clear now. He's trying to get as far as he can from the American South, from the discrimination. When he arrived in Calgary, he introduced himself as a Western Cherokee, the first major distortion of his identity. And it's in Calgary. He obtains that job. He gets the job that's going to be his ticket to independence. Uh, he becomes a reporter for the Calgary Herald, and he's He's a natural writer. He does very well and has this terrific career throughout North America, actually, eventually. 
Oh, it's all breaking down because rumors getting out that he's part African-American. Of course, this is the high point of segregation in the United States. This is the, what's the phrase? One drop is too many. If you're one drop of any connection with African-American heritage, is you're African-American. So he, it's just he's caught. He doesn't want to go back to that. So he doesn't, he will not, he, he, he sends money home to his family, helps them out and all, but he cannot go back himself. He's not going to go back to this life which he's escaped. In 1931, Longlance moved to California to act as secretary and bodyguard to a wealthy American woman embarking on a trip to Europe. Well, on that trip, he suffered bouts of depression, became increasingly unstable. On his return to the United States, on 20th of March, 1932, he took his own life by gunshot at his patron's home in Arcadia, near Los Angeles. What's the legacy? Longlances resides in his writings on the First Nations, in which he did good work in combating, combating many negative stereotypes of Aboriginal people. For these articles, he carried out, as Alberta historian Hugh Dempsey has noted, Quote, valuable fieldwork at a time when few ethnologists and even few journalists were concerned about the history of the Indian. Thank you.